A great American president, Abraham Lincoln, said that his country was the last best hope of Earth, a nation with a special mission to save mankind. I'm Professor Adam Smith, director of the Rothermere American Institute at Oxford, and on this podcast, I'll be exploring how this powerful idea shapes America. Breaking news at 11, a Russian invasion of Ukraine is underway as troops move in. Right now, there are reports... Since the Russian invasion of Ukraine began on the 24th of February 2022, the US Congress has approved the spending of more than $100 billion on military aid. Freedom is priceless. President Biden visited Ukraine on the anniversary of the invasion and has repeatedly explained that resisting Russian aggression is in America's own geostrategic interest. America's backing for Ukraine, Biden has said, will not waver. Other Americans take a different view. Ukraine is a young democracy and we're sending American taxpayer money over there with no oversight. Shortly after I win the presidency, I will have the disastrous war between Russia and Ukraine settled. It'll take 24 hours. Former President Trump, who has a long track record of admiring Vladimir Putin, boasts he could end the war in a day, presumably not in a manner that would satisfy the Ukrainians. Meanwhile, Republican presidential contender Ron DeSantis has said that defending Ukraine is not a vital national interest for the United States. His message why a woke Democrat spending more money defending Ukraine's borders than America's borders. So what does this tension tell us about America? Is this the latest manifestation of an old tension between a vision of America as engaged in the world as the last best hope, or as a citadel apart from the world, the debate that roiled the United States after the First World War, a debate about whether American freedom is best preserved by being isolated or involved. Well, joining me now to offer the long view on this contemporary debate are Phillips O'Brien, Professor of Strategic Studies at the University of St Andrews, one of the most influential analysts of the Russian invasion who's just returned from Ukraine, and Julie Norman, Associate Professor and Co-Director of the Centre for US Politics at UCL. Phillips and Julie, thank you both uh, so much for joining me. Phillips, let me begin with you. Is defeating the Russian invasion of Ukraine a vital national interest for the United States? It's a really tough question for them. And, and I would say yes. What happens in Ukraine has massive impact to the future of Europe. It basically is a question of, do you have what I would call a, a, a united peaceful Europe, which would have a victorious Ukraine on its way to, to EU and NATO membership, which for the United States would have enormous strategic advantages. It would basically end the European issue for decades uh, as a significant strategic concern. Or if you have a victorious Russia, you then end up with a hostile state, which has claimed some kind of victory, which would mean that the United States would have to play probably a greater role in Europe than it's played over the previous 30 years. So. It, it's it's not so much a question of national survival for the United States, but it is a question of to what degree is the United States going to have to be really immersed in European security going forward. Julie, what do you think? Yeah, I do certainly agree with everything Phillips just said. And part of this is how the U.S. projects itself and its stance in the world. And so what Putin does or what Russia gets away with 
also indicates what other authoritarian states or actors may get away with. So it is important, I think, for the U.S. in our current um, standing with China, with other states that we're currently trying to um, assert a certain kind of um, position with, that the U.S. does take a strong stance on Russia. And I would also point out that the invasion of Ukraine is also having ripple effects around the world, as many people know, uh, in terms of the amount of food aid, in terms of the amount of other kinds of resources that are usually shipped out all over the world. That's having a big uh, effect. And so the U.S., in its interest to maintain stability in the Middle East, in Sub-Saharan Africa, all this has ripple effects throughout. And so the U.S.'s support for Ukraine has both very direct as well as indirect ramifications to it. I want to get a sense of the 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 context here um phillips can you describe for me how the american intervention in ukraine which of course is not boots on the ground to use the hackneyed phrase but just a lot of money how does it compare to other american uh, foreign policy interventions in the recent past well, it's it's a fascinating one in the sense that it was not no one was thinking about this seemingly in the White House or the Pentagon before February 24th, 2022, that the assumption really was that the Ukrainian East Ukraine would be conquered. So a lot of the assumption on U.S. intervention was one, we'd be dealing with maybe an insurgency, you know, a retreat to far western Ukraine. A, a kind of guerrilla warfare that wouldn't require massive U.S. intervention. But what happened is the Ukrainians outperformed American assumptions. So what we actually see is a real process in being where they're constantly remaking the, the different red lines or escalation lines about what the U.S. will be willing to do. Seemingly, I don't want to say on the hoof, but close to it. So if you look what happened before February 24th, no heavy weapons, right? We'll send your Ukraine man pads, small things to show our commitment, but not get too involved because this is a Russian sphere of interest. Well, then February 24th happens. The Ukrainians resist. They resist. Well, well, now we can start saying some heavy weapons. So we'll send HIMARS, but we won't send tanks. Okay. We can't send tanks because that would be too escalatory. And then the Ukrainians do really well in the fall. And then, okay, we can send tanks now, um, at, but we won't send F-16s. And now we're at that stage. So it, it's an interesting process where the U.S. government is reacting both to what's going on in the war, I think taking the pulse of U.S. public opinion, taking an estimate of what they think Vladimir Putin will do, because they are, I think, very worried about our elements in the administration seem very worried about escalation and deciding how far to go down the line. So they tend to go down the line of giving more. It just takes a little more time than I think the Ukrainians would like it to take. I think I'm right in saying that spending on Ukraine amounts to about 6% of current US defense spending. Is that a lot or not very much? Doesn't sound very much. So it it doesn't sound like a lot, I, but I will say it is a significant commitment of military resources and economic aid, uh, for sure, just hands down. Um, as Phillips has said, it has not gone as far as many uh, Ukrainians would like and as many in Europe would like. So I see the US in sort of this 
restrained commitment kind of position that they've been in since the beginning of of the war with trying to support but not wanting to push it too far and certainly no discussion at any point about boots on the ground. And the challenge of that is you end up in some ways pleasing no one. There are many on the, the right as well as the left who would like to see more of a commitment and then obviously many who would, would like to see less. Where I think the administration has been most successful is in their diplomacy and keeping the allies united, keeping NATO united on this. I think there's been a lot of diplomatic skill there, a lot of very effective diplomacy, you know, across all different ranges of states. And I think the administration has done a good job with that. In terms of what they're actually deciding in the future steps of sending, I think that's going to get more and more complicated as the war continues. If I, if I might add to what Julie said, it, it's cost a lot. But what's interesting, it costs so much less than sending in U.S. forces themselves. If you look at, say, what the U.S. spent in Iraq or Afghanistan over you know, over those wars and compare it to what they're spending in Ukraine, it's of an entirely different order down for Ukraine. The U.S. Make, has problems when it sends in its own forces. What this shows is the U.S. can actually be more effective if it stands with people who want to fight for themselves as opposed to trying to change people. That's the problem. And, and Ukraine, for the money it cost, is having a far greater impact than, say, the spending that happened in Iraq or Afghanistan. That's really interesting. So we, we're talking here really about the, the, the scale of the commitment in, in, in fiscal terms. I wonder how we would characterize it, what kind of a commitment this is and how this compares to, to the last few decades in, in American foreign policy. I, I interviewed about a year ago for this podcast the then... Uh, U.S. ambassador to the U.K., Philip Rieker, uh, about the U.S. role in the world. And at that point, this was in the early days of the Ukraine invasion, he saw some parallels between what was happening then and the Cold War. And he was being positive about the the reigniting of effectively of Cold War alliances and the reassertion, a sort of clarity about America's role in the European sphere of influence. Is that still true, uh, Phillips? I mean, do you think that ha- it was, is that representative of how American foreign policymakers, at least those around the, the White House currently in power, see this? Is this somehow exercising the ghosts of Iraq and those deeply problematic interventions? Is there a beautiful clarity about America's purpose here, which has been lacking since the end of the Cold War? <laughs> Beautiful clarity is a very interesting word, Adam. I don't know if I would go to the to quite the beauty. I think in some ways it's provided an important balance after really the disaster of Afghanistan. I mean, we if we if we look where we were a year and a half ago with the with the the mishandled withdrawal. If, I mean, I think they should have pulled out of Afghanistan earlier, but the fact is the way they pulled out was also not terribly successful. It certainly seemed to many people that the United States didn't quite know what it was doing or what it wanted in the world and was heading towards a period of less international involvement. And I think Ukraine has partly expunged that narrative temporarily. People stopped thinking about it or talking about it. You never see Afghanistan discussed really in, in the kind of way that we would have expected now. So Ukraine has played that role. And it's also, you might say, confirmed in certain people's mind that actually in this case, the United States can be a force to help people. You know, the Afghanistan and Iraq led to some really quite conflicting emotions as to what the United States did. 
But in this case, these are the Ukrainians fighting for their own freedom against a country that seems, or at least a leadership that seems wanting to, to wipe them out as an independent people. And the United States is helping them stand up for, for themselves. And that certainly is a better narrative than the narrative that came out of uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. The, one of the aspects of that is that, uh, and you emphasize this, Judy, is that diplomatically, the Biden administration appears to have been very successful in relation to what's happening in Ukraine, perhaps in contrast to the tangled and difficult stories in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, is that due, in your view, to the the nature of the conflict? Is that just inherent in the what I just call the beautiful clarity, but what just seems to me to be the clarity of the Russian invasion and the images that we all saw last February of Russian tanks invading foreign soil. Uh, clear images which stand in such contrast to the murky origins of the interventions in both of those other places I mentioned, Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, it's it certainly, uh, once the war started, I would certainly agree. Um, you know, as, as Phillips mentioned, these are two such different conflicts, though. What I would say, though, is before the actual invasion, if you remember back in 2021, when the administration was starting to raise the alarms that this might happen, there were many who didn't take that seriously, largely because of Iraq. It almost was the um, kind of the, the Trojan horse or the, the boy who cried wolf with um, people not taking the U.S. seriously on some of those assessments and some of those projections. And once the invasion happened, obviously very changed very quickly. Um, but I, I do think that Iraq piece w was lingering. But I do think it's also informed, again, the restrained response to this in terms of the types of arms that are sent. And also, again, of course, no discussion of, of boots on the ground. So there's certainly that sense of looking backward. Um, and I would say, again, also that sense of looking forward of, um, you know, recognize that everything that's happening in Ukraine and with Russia, many in the U.S. are mapping that on potential conflicts in the future with China in regards to Taiwan. So there, there's backward-looking considerations as well as forward-looking ones in our timelines. I guess, unsurprisingly, the polling shows there's a big partisan divide over this. More than half of Republicans disapprove of the Biden administration's response to the invasion. Um, but I, I wonder what strikes you most about that. In fact, it's the case that, you know, 28% or something like that of Republicans do approve uh, of what the administration is doing in Ukraine. That's a far higher figure than approve of what any Democrat or the Biden administration is doing in any other sphere. So what strikes you most about this, Julie? Is it the high level of Republican support or the low level of Republican support? Yeah, well, what's most striking is that it's not clear cut. I mean, there's the divisions between the two parties that are beginning to be a greater cleavage. And I think the closer we get to 2024, those will be uh, increasingly uh, noticeable. Um, but what's more interesting to me is the differences just within the parties, especially within the Republican Party. You have very strong traditional leaders like Minority Leader and the Senate, Mitch McConnell, being very outspoken about the need for continuing aid to Ukraine, if not even increasing it, almost saying the administration has not done enough. And then newer voices and more populist voices obviously saying the opposite. And even among Democrats, not everyone has been or, or is in lockstep. And so I do think there's a lot of um, variation between the two parties. I think we'll see, again, a, um, a greater cleavage going into 2024. But at the same time, again, if and assuming that the war will go on, at some point, I, I do think there will need to be some kind of convergence because 
both parties are just going to need to be pragmatic about what the U.S. commitment is going to look like in a potentially very drawn out war. And so my 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 grand hope is that it will become less partisan as pragmatics uh, take precedence. It's sometimes said that foreign policy plays remarkably little role in you know U.S. domestic politics or electoral politics unless the United States is itself engaged in war. Is that true? I mean, I wonder what you think about this, Phillips. I mean, what are the circumstances in which foreign policy questions become politically salient in the United States? This has been a fascinating war because it's actually shown that a lot of really good research is right and a lot of bad reporting is wrong. That uh, I'll go back to early after February 24th when the reporting said, well, at some point the U.S. public will get bored with this war. But actually... Boredom never factors into the U.S. population's reaction to something like this in a war. Where this became interesting to me is in 2014, uh, Adam, you might enjoy this, I did did some research on American reaction to the outbreak of the First World War for the first, you know, for, for a centenary thing. And what I found was that, you know, everyone wrote in the 20s about how sad they were and depressed and what a horrible thing it was. But everyone in 1914, it's really exciting. This is a war that's broken out. We can't believe this is amazing. And Or they wrote, we're going to make a lot of money. No one was writing this was a bad thing. They were, they, were, they were writing that they were following it and they were intensely gripped. And so I started going into the research, the, the really good political science research on public opinion and war. And what they show is the American public opinion never gets bored. By the way, it doesn't really react to casualties, which a lot of people thought they react to blood. Actually, what seems to happen is two things matter. As Julie said, there's usually a partisan divide. And by the way, that's gotten stronger since the end of the Cold War. That if you look at Kosovo, Republicans were were far uh, more hostile to the Kosovo intervention because that was Clinton and the Democrats whereas Democrats were far more hostile to the Iraq intervention because that was Bush and the Republicans. So there is this gap you know, that, that people, partisans do not support wars as much uh, for presidents of the other party. But the second thing is that actually victory matters. So the, the American people, when they look at Ukraine, the really important thing is Ukraine went from what looked like a really bad bet uh, last February. They're not going to win. They're going to be trounced. Let's move on. Let's not get involved to oh my gosh, Ukraine can win. And that plays a massive role in allowing the administration to support aid. In fact, when I was in Ukraine, I was talking, I said, the the great challenge you have is people are still going to think of Russia as really strong and to win this war. And that's the, the narrative you have to fight. You have to continue the narrative that Ukraine can win the war because that's the best way to keep U.S. public opinion absolutely sort of geared towards it. Uh, I mean, as you were talking, Phillips, I I, I was thinking of the lessons of of Vietnam, which we've talked about Iraq and Afghanistan being a a shadow that that falls over American interventions in 2022-2023, which it does. But Vietnam remains the kind of great example of a supposedly disastrous, utterly disastrous, catastrophic American foreign policy intervention. I guess the lesson of what you're saying there is not so much that the problem in Vietnam that led to the political backlash was casualties, but the perception, the very well-founded perception, that it was not a winnable war for the United States. 
Absolutely, because when does U.S. public opinion turn against Vietnam? American public opinion is actually quite solid on Vietnam up until early 68. And then in 68, Tet Offensive happens after Johnson says, we're just about to win. You know, the war is coming under control. That's what they're saying in 67. They're up to half a million troops. And then, oh, Tet happens. And all of a sudden, it just the, the quagmire idea comes in that this is never going to end. And that's what leads to the American people turning against the war. It's not the casualties. It's the fact that it seems to be one that the United States cannot win, no matter what they do. Same with Iraq. I think that's what happened with Iraq. Julie, as someone who watches American politics very closely, do you think on some level this is in the minds of Republican opponents of the Biden administration? That if they can, whatever the rights and wrongs of the conflict, which perhaps they're not interested in, if they can establish the narrative on Fox News or wherever else that this is not a war that is going to be won in any meaningful, recognisable sense, that in itself will do damage to the administration. Is that too cynical of me? <laughs> it's certainly part of the story. I mean, everything that Phillips just said is exactly right, but it certainly applies to wars where the US had you know, their own soldiers uh, serving and, and dying in those wars. So I do think Ukraine is a little bit different in how um, the story progresses and how much it holds the interest. It certainly is holding the interest of many. I think it's a it's a good story for many to be to be following in the sense of um, the the surprise re, um, resilience of Ukraine. But at the end of the day, uh, in my estimation, most Americans will not be voting on this issue in 2024. I mean, the the usual domestic issues that determine most of our elections, whether it's the economy or cultural issues, abortion, and of course, if if Trump is on the ticket, everything that that raises that will you know bubble to the fore much more than uh, than foreign policy and, and, and Ukraine. I think the way that it will be leveraged the most is presenting the financial economic commitments to Ukraine as zero sum. Why are American dollars and uh, American budget going to somewhere else and not to Americans here in the heartland? Also, the military argument, why is, uh, you know, why are uh, ammunition stores being, um, you know, arguably depleted and these kinds of things to send to Ukraine when we might be facing bigger challenges? So that is the narrative I expect we'll be hearing more closer to 2024. Um, But again, at the end of the day, I don't think that'll be the defining issue for most voters. I just wonder, though, whether whether in effect what you're saying there is that to, to think about foreign policy as entirely in a separate category from domestic policy when it comes to electoral politics is, is, is not always very helpful because what you're describing there are ways in which a, a foreign, foreign policy issue sending uh, American dollars to Ukraine is, is turned into an issue which directly feeds into a narrative about liberal elites being more concerned about abstruse issues of no concern to ordinary Americans rather than putting out walls against the Mexican invaders or whatever it it might be. So the two issues are always intertwined in the way that they're talked about. Absolutely. And they always have been. But I think um, Trump really, I think, changed that narrative quite a bit, made it seem very either or. Obviously, America first language just very much suggests a resistance to any kind of intervening overseas. And even Biden has adopted some of that. Um, We shouldn't forget some of Biden's initial messaging was, um, you know, a U.S. foreign policy for the middle class and really framing a lot of his initial 
foreign policy framing around what's going to be best for working class Americans. And so I don't think that is going away in 2024. And Biden, the Democrats will need to be a bit savvy, I think, in how they continue to frame Ukraine as in the U.S.'s best interests and uh, and in accordance with our values. Up till now, that's been pretty, I think, pretty solid to be able to do. There, there may be some detractors, but overall that has worked for them. But I do think that's going to get harder the more that it goes on and the more that the commitments continue to increase. So they will need to have an answer to that. Joe Biden has said that US commitment to Ukraine will not waver. It will only not waver if public opinion continues to support this level of American commitment. And that will be tested in one form or another at elections in the, in the coming year or two. How can we measure the kind of hard-nosed realpolitik um, motivations for American intervention in Ukraine or anywhere else against more idealistic notions of America as the defender of a liberal global order, as the last best hope, as the defender of freedom globally? Is it meaningful to even try to distinguish between those two things? I think it's certainly meaningful to distinguish. But I think for political messaging, Biden and again, even many Republicans uh, are getting more traction with leaning into the idea of values, which, again, I don't think can be separated any more than foreign policy and domestic policy can be be separated. Morals and values are also very intertwined. Um, But we've seen, again, Biden using that language a lot. It is what resonates most with voters. I think speaking to the interests of the war will be increasingly important, but it's a harder message to get across. A lot of it is, again, is dealing with abstracts and also with abstracts that are not affecting individuals in their day-to-day lives, even though they do have sincere and significant repercussions for the U.S. and its national interests in the the short term and the midterm. The question is really about what this is, what is this likely to tell us this, as far as we can tell at this moment, what is the American support for Ukraine likely to tell us about how the United States, what role the United States can play in the world in the early uh, 21st century? I mean, we've moved beyond the Cold War. We've moved into what appears to be something more like a multipolar globe. Um, Is this a template for future interventions? you know, if so, what does it what does it tell us? Is this a new kind of intervention potentially in terms of its the message, in terms of how it's sold, in terms of how it's conducted? The U.S. runs into problems if it does the fighting, if it takes control, if it tries to direct other countries and other peoples to be what it wants them to be. And I, I think the United States should not do that, both on ethical but also strategic grounds, because it never works out terribly well. Uh, it usually ends up with a great deal of investment of, of money that's wasted and people that end up dying. So I, I, I think it provides a very interesting contrast to that going forward. If the United States is in a form of relative decline, that's just the reality. And it will continue to be so as the global South grows economically, as India grows, the United States' share of world GDP, its, its you know, military dominance will be not what it was 10, 20, 30 years ago. 
And therefore, what the United States needs to do is look at how it uses its influence around the world. And I would say it would need to use it to only involve itself if people wish to have it there and not as the driving factor. And I think that is, these are the lessons to take from it. Plus, I think it's also one that the American people will be more content with. It'll be less divisive. As Julian, you were saying, yes, there are divisions now with the Republican Party. But what's interesting is that the Democrats overwhelmingly support this, and a large number of Republicans do as well. Uh, And in fact, DeSantis got his wings clipped when he came out with that interview and he said, oh, this isn't of American concern. What was interesting is he had to row back from that um, the other day. So it shows, I do think it shows, uh, has some interesting lessons as to what the United States should do going forward. I think there's always been a bit of a tension between wanting the U.S. to have this leadership role, but also being wary of committing the necessary resources to be able to do that. And that's, again, come from both the the right and the left. But I do think what we're seeing now is an important shift to you know what some are calling the use of smart power rather than, than hard or soft in the sense of, yes, playing more of a supportive role, as Phillips noted, like the supporting actor rather than the director or the lead star is very key. Um, but I, I will say that's somewhat rare that that happens for the U.S. when there is a very clear, uh, morally clear conflict where the U.S. is invited in, is invited to have that kind of role. Also in this, you know, the U.S. was able to work very quickly and solidly, again, with European and NATO allies. And that's been crucial in our response to Ukraine. That's not going to be a given in other parts of the world where we may be facing conflicts as well. And the last thing I'll note is just what we said earlier, the U.S. has been very reactive in this conflict. And that is probably not a position that we always want to be in. I think after, hopefully after Ukraine, we will um, be able to think a bit more about what this kind of um, way of doing war might look like in a way that's a, that has a bit more time to think about what it might, uh, how, how it might be planned out a bit more effectively. But if that's right, if you're, if you're both right, and this does present a, a template for a new American way of war, which in a way reinforces this very old idea uh, of America as the last best hope, the defender of freedom, that represents a complete repudiation of Trumpism, doesn't it? of the idea that America is no better than anybody else, essentially, which is which is kind of what he said at one point in, in 2016, that America does bad things, other people do bad things too, they're America first because we're all, all that we're interested in is our own narrow material self-interest. I'll say I'm, I'm not sure it's always clear to know what Trumpism is on foreign policy. I mean, on this, we can you know assume a more isolationist perspective that seems to do with the way he's leaning. Um, but on something like... China, for example, I'm not sure if he would be quite as isolationist. Uh, he was obviously you know, very uh, tough on China in terms of speak. I don't know if he would commit military resources or personnel to any potential conflict there. Um, but I do think it's somewhat case specific. And likewise with Democrats and, and liberals, I think there's many where they would prefer a more restrained response. So um, I would say I think we'll probably see a little bit more of the isolationist um, voices coming forward. But again, that's always coupled with these calls for the U.S. to stay number one and the superpower. And that rhetoric is also very strong in those wings. And trying to um, marry those two things that might seem a little bit separate, I think, is where the challenge is going to be for Republicans, at least, and even for some Democrats. 
Yes. There is no Trumpism on foreign policy. It's ad hoc emotional responses to questions with no internal logic. <laughs> that uh, you know, the, a lot of those who were theoretically backing Trump are saying it, it was said that, oh, we can't help Ukraine because we have to have more force in China. You know, China's our threat. So they're not being isolationist on China. They're being supposedly more interventionist when it comes to the Pacific. So I don't actually think Trumpism represents a coherency when it comes to foreign policy. I mean, there are elements of it that that do tap an isolationist sort of vein in the United States, but that's never been a dominant vein in the U.S. It's the real uh, question in the U.S. is to what degree will the country be internationalist? And, and that goes back to the First World War when that debate has occurred. And I think we're probably in a different period than we were from 1945 to 2020, where, where you really were throwing your weight around everywhere a lot of the time, but that still doesn't mean the United States is going to cease to be internationalist. That's such an important point. The concept of isolationism is often misunderstood, isn't it, uh, in American history? It, it, it's very rarely the case that you can find important political actors who want no American involvement at all uh, in the world. So the degree of engagement is is definitely right. And also the character of that engagement, and, and specifically, of course, around the First World War, there was the question of the commitment to a multilateral alliance, as it was seen in the form of the, of the League of Nations. And I suppose there are echoes of that today aren't there so one of the aspects of the american intervention in ukraine that both of you have emphasized is the successful diplomacy with european allies and biden specifically has talked about nato and the resurgence of nato as did ambassador rico when i spoke to him on this podcast about a year ago and of course nato is now expanding with the omission of two new members probably most people wouldn't have predicted that um a few years ago i'm wondering whether that particular question U.S. involvement in NATO is becoming, uh, perhaps has become, a line of partisan division. Julie, I would. I mean, to me, Ukraine is so interesting because on the it's simultaneously underscored the need for U.S. military commitments, while also also simultaneously underscoring the need for Europe to bump up its own defense capability. So I think that you will see what started not. Not even under Trump, but even under Obama, continued calls for European states to up their defense budgets and, and thus update their um, uh, their contributions to NATO. So I think that will be there regardless of the party. I will say, however, though, that if it is a Trump White House again after 2024, I, I do think that will shift U.S. relations with NATO again. And I think everyone in NATO is very aware of that. And there are many who are concerned that what we're seeing now with Biden is a sort of intermezzo between the two Trump administrations. And, and I think other countries are taking that seriously and how they play their own cards, because it's not clear how much the U.S. commitment will be there. So I do think Trump as an individual more than the parties um, will would take aim at NATO if he had the chance again. Remember, Europe since 45 was first divided. And even since 1989, it's been NATO, and then you might say a neutralist or buffer core and Russia. That buffer is now gone. I mean, Finland is in NATO. Sweden will be in NATO, I think, relatively soon, sometime later this year after the Turkish elections. So really you have – and by the way, Ukraine is desperate to get into NATO. When you go to Ukraine, that's what you hear. 
all the time. What's the plan to get us into NATO? When do we get into NATO? So they see that their future. And by the way, they, they're being strongly supported in that by countries like Poland and Czech and Slovakia and the Baltics who all see it. So in a sense, you have Europe is NATO. I mean, you have a few states that are sort of free riding on the end, like Ireland and Switzerland, whose security is completely guaranteed by NATO. But they're not themselves actually really guarantors of their own security. So NATO is European security is what I mean by that. And Russia, if it's defeated in Ukraine, we're talking decades till it can rebuild itself. I mean, I don't think this is a military that took 30 years for Putin to put together and it can't beat Ukraine armed with NATO standard weapons, mostly built 20 years ago, if not earlier. The idea that Russia could be a threat to NATO if it's defeated in this war, uh, beggars uh, the imagination for many, many years. And that's what I mean. Europe, the European security question in a military sense will be settled because Russia will be weakened to such a degree and require such a long time to rebuild. Uh, that that then provides the United States with a great deal of freedom of maneuver. I mean, I actually don't want a hostile policy towards China. I think that's a bit bonkers because China is a great power. <laughs> Russia's not a great power. And that's why the United States can actually defeat Russia, whereas it shouldn't go to war with China because that would be an absolute catastrophe for the world. But it would allow it the freedom to, I think, you know, not be as involved with Europe because Europe will be taken care of. Julie, what Phillips has laid out there sounds very compelling and very enticing, if it can be achieved. We're recording this podcast uh, a week or so after the uh, leaking of intelligence documents. And bearing that in mind, I mean, what's your sense of whether the American defense establishment believes that that's likely to happen? Are they as optimistic about that? possible scenario as Phillips seems to be. Yeah, I think even before the leaks came out, uh, most honest defense assessments were a bit more pessimistic about the ability to have a any kind of defeat of Russia or victory for Ukraine, especially a clear cut one anytime in the near future. I think what is more assumed will happen is that the war will continue to a certain point and then hit a sort of stalemate point. And even if there are negotiations, that it's still very likely that um, the Donbass in particular would, would remain very contentious and almost almost bring us back to where we were before the invasion, where there were, you know, separatist troops and what, whatnot uh, vying over that territory. So my sense is defense is, is expecting this to be long and again, not clear cut. Um, but with that said, the X factor in all of this has been Ukrainians themselves and this very unexpected resilience. One reason the U.S. keeps giving these you know, arms they said they won't is because the value for money Ukrainians have been extremely um, adept at, at training quickly and using them effectively. So I would say um, it's important to be realistic about these projections, but also say we, we really don't know what's going to happen. And that's one reason why we need to think about all these different possibilities of what Europe might look like after with Russia uh, defeated or not. Phillips, is that right? Is that in the end why you think that a genuine Ukrainian victory, as opposed to some kind of frozen conflict short of complete victory, is on the cards because of the capacity of the Ukrainian government and people? I'll start by saying, look, what does this war show is how few people who claim to know or understand war do, that the analytical community 
in the militaries failed completely before February 24th to understand what the Russian army was and to understand what the Ukrainian army was. Yeah, the only people, by the way, who were, were somewhat close were those who actually bordered Russia. So the Baltics and Finland and Poland, those people in Eastern Europe had a better idea what the Russian army really was. It was more the major Western analysts who completely got it wrong. And the United States did contact Zelensky and say, do you want us to get you out? This is what they thought would happen. So if I remain skeptical of their ability to properly analyze this war, I hope you know that is something, at least there is some evidence for that. The reason Ukraine has not won to this point, by the way, first of all, had it been armed on February 24th like it is now, the war would be over. Okay, Ukraine was armed with light weapons, old Russian stuff, basically old crap. And they fought the Russians off with that. They are still not being armed with anything that a NATO country would have in significant numbers. They don't have NATO aircraft. They are just getting NATO tanks. They've just appeared and they've had no time to train on them. Had Ukraine been armed properly with NATO standard weapons, the war would be over and Ukraine would have won. And the one thing that's keeping them from winning is the fact that they're still being drip-fed modern systems. They are not being armed, what we would call in the way of of real strong aid. These are not the cutting-edge tanks they're getting or or systems. So Ukraine can win the war. It's absolutely clear Ukraine can win. The question is whether it is to be given the weapons that make the victory definite or not. Okay, because the Ukrainian army can do it. They've shown they can do it. If they're not given enough weapons to do it, then yes, you might end up with a frozen conflict. I think in the long run, Ukraine will win this war. Uh, It's a question of how long it takes. I don't actually believe in a long-term war because I don't believe Russia can sustain it economically without Chinese support. I mean, if we're going to have a long war, let's see what China does because Russia can't make enough to keep fighting this war. If the Chinese intervene, that changes the ballgame. Um, so I, but on the whole, I don't see a long war scenario, uh, but I, and I do think Ukraine can win. The type of victory Ukraine will have will depend on what they're given. That was Philip O'Brien, Professor of Strategic Studies at the University of St. Andrews. Follow him on Twitter for his analysis of the conflict in Ukraine, and Julie Norman, Associate Professor of US Politics at UCL. What is increasingly clear as the 2024 election approaches is that the Biden administration's support for Ukraine is becoming a test of what kind of nation America wants to be. It may be a far-off conflict, and not one in which American lives are on the line, Yet, in the debate over whether to confront Russian aggression is the echo of multiple decisions in the past, from Pearl Harbor to Vietnam to the response to the fall of the Berlin Wall and the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. As so often, the fight, in the end, is over what it means to be the last best hope of Earth. And you've been listening to The Last Best Hope from Oxford University's Rothermere American Institute. Go to rai.ox.ac.uk to find out more about us. Upcoming free in-person events include a discussion on the 1st of June about Richard Blackett's new biography of Samuel Ringgold Ward, who escaped enslavement and became a leading figure in the struggle for black freedom. 
And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please like us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. There are nearly 50 other episodes to listen to, so I hope you enjoy them. Our producer is Emily Williams. Production assistance has come from Hannah Grieving. And my name is Adam Smith. Goodbye. <laughs>